Welcome back to Better Friendships, a podcast all about creating, growing, and maintaining friendships that sustain, fulfill, and enrich our lives. We're your hosts, Julie and Katie. And today we're going to look at female friendship during the Victorian era. We skipped a few years, but we'll be covering those in a later episode focused on literature. I also wanted to point out we're having some audio issues. Um, so if you hear any awkward pauses, that's just us trying to make sure that our audio syncs up so that we're not talking over each other and you can actually hear what both of us have to say. So this is part of our series on the history of female friendships. This is part three. But before we dive in, I did want to circle back to something that we talked about during our last episode that we got some good comments on. Um, The first thing I want to state, so first of all, I just want to say that this is just my opinion. No one needs to agree with me. In fact, I think we really need to, as, you know, as a society, encourage women to respectfully disagree with one another. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit more about the song WAP. So the reason that I think that WAP is a powerful song is because to me, it makes a distinction between hidden or secret and private. So I had talked about that idea of the lady in the lady in the streets, but a freak in the sheets, that we should still have this sexuality, but it should be hidden and it should be hidden. And I think that's different than private. And, And I think WAP kind of shows us that. Women's sexuality is talked about a lot in media and culture, but it's usually talked about by men from a man's perspective or what we'd call the male gaze, which Katie is going to talk about in just a moment. So here we have Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, and they're claiming their own sexuality. And they're receiving a lot more pushback than men do on this topic. Because we acknowledge that women should have sexuality, but also that it should be secret. And a lot of kind of the pushback that we've gotten or, or the comments that we've gotten about the song WAP has been that it should be private, that this kind of sexuality, it should be um, personal. It should be kind of behind closed doors. And kind of my take on that is anytime the word should is being used, um, should, who who is saying should and why. Um, But anyway, personally, I do prefer privacy. I would never put my information out there in the way that Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion have. Um, But I also believe that women who choose to share their sexuality and their preferences deserve that freedom and that outlet. And I need to advocate for safe spaces to share and talk about sex and sexuality. If we can't talk about sex and sexuality, we don't know when something is wrong or abnormal. And I'm talking about emotionally, I'm talking physically, I'm talking about even within a relationship. The book Come As You Are by Dr. Emily Nagoski is all about women's sexuality. And she discusses how many scientific, medical, emotional, and cultural misconceptions and incorrect beliefs 
about women's bodies and sexuality still exist. There are a lot of things that we believe about women, men, and sex that are are just wrong. And we can't combat those misconceptions and false ideas without talking about those topics. That's kind of my perspective on WAP and why it's a meaningful song. I agree. And I, you know, I, I don't want to spend too long talking about it because I want to get into the meat of the episode. And I know you do too, but I agree. And I will read that book. Um, bringing that up in particular, it makes me think about how we've talked before about how research on fear and stress and how, how we kind of look at what a human stress reaction is that research has been very heavily male and we've talked about that before. So it's interesting to hear that research is lacking for women's sexuality as well. The other thing that, that you talked about, the male gaze, um, there's a lot of discourse right now, especially in the film world about the male gaze versus the female gaze and how the same character in the same script can be either empowering for women or objectifying for women, depending on who they're tailoring sort of that, that character for. Are they, you know, is, is the camera working on behalf of the male gaze, in which case we might, you know, see something like the back, the backs of a, a woman's legs, right? Or is it working for the female gaze, in which case we might see her very killer and awesome high heels? Um, Again, it's it's a conversation that comes up a lot. It's come up particularly about the Amazons in the DC universe and how their costumes changed between between two separate films, one of which was directed by a woman, I believe. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, one of them was directed by a woman and those costumes were very, very powerful costumes. I mean, you you kind of believed that those might be what warriors might wear versus in the next movie where a lot of the costume disappeared and there was a lot more skin shown and, and that movie was much more tailored to the male gaze. Um, again, I, I, you see it a lot in film research, but I think it's something that we can apply to a lot of different media, music included. And I think that WAP is a song that is sung from a female perspective, from a female gaze, for a female audience, for a female gaze. And I think it's important that a song like that is out there regardless of sort of how we personally feel about those lyrics. It's not one of my favorite songs, but I think it's important that it exists and that it's out there. I think that's a good point that it, it's not really about the musical contribution. Um, I think we can all kind of agree that WAP is not poetry. These, these are not um, groundbreaking, moving lyrics, but I think it is important that it's from a woman's gaze and, and I want to take a minute to kind of flip that and look at how men sing about sex. And it's a very outward look. It's a lot of, I'm going to do this to her. She's going to like this thing that I'm, that I'm doing to her. It's very, it's directed outward at what's being done to the woman in the song. And we play those songs on the radio and we don't really bat an eye. Um, if you don't believe me, please check out the song Dicked Down in Dallas. And take a minute to read the Rolling Stone reviews of that song. And, and you'll see kind of how society is 
more comfortable with that outward look with a man talking about sex versus Cardi B saying what she wants. Um, and again, we don't really have to like, like the song in terms of its musical contribution, but I do think that the ideas behind it are relevant. I think they're worth talking about. And I think that they're worth thinking about. Um, I think anytime we kind of support a culture that takes away women's agency and supports the shaming of women's behavior. Um, and I think that's happening when the way that people are talking about the song WAP, we're cutting the legs out from under those women who are being shamed, even if their shame is hidden. You know, there's women that listen to that song and they heard Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion sing those lyrics and they said, girl, me too. Or, you know, whatever it was, girl, same. And and then people are saying, this is gross, this is disgusting. And those same women who are saying, oh, same, are now hearing you're gross and you're disgusting. What we're doing is we're telling those women that we don't respect their preferences and that we are not a safe place to discuss those preferences or questions about them. We tell those women, I can't be friend to all of who you are. We continue the witch hunt that teaches us not to trust other women with who we are. And since women use friendship as a site of creating identity, we are limiting what we can be, what we can be together, and how we engage with who we truly are. I think you're right. And I think that's also a good segue into today's episode about the Victorian era. So with the song WAP, Cardi B is making a new space for women's perspective in music, and she's not apologizing for it. And she's being really bold about it, and it's making people uncomfortable. In the Victorian era, we see the same thing. We see women pushing for agency and pushing to have a voice, creating new spaces for themselves in their own lives and in sort of the larger society, and we see them getting pushback for it. We see women's voices being amplified and new spaces being created for women to use their voices for the first time and say what they wanted. And along with all of that, sort of because of it, we see changes in women's friendships and in what those friendships look like and what women can accomplish together and in how those friendships are talked about. At the same time, we also see women looking at other women as different or at themselves as different, smarter, or more motivated, or more capable. And just like today, we see a lot of social change and upheaval of what's been considered normal, and of sort of the status quo that society has been operating in. And I'll lead in just by sort of framing it sort of generally <laughs> what's happening during the Victorian era and during the 1800s. And again, this is a very sort of general framing. There's a lot going on at a lot of different times, but just to give y'all an idea, this is the time of the Industrial Revolution where we're moving from more agrarian, small community-based societies to more industrial societies based around larger cities. We're seeing the advent of machines, of mass production, of factories where people and women in particular are working. Um, and because there's so much mass production, we're seeing women freed from have-to-do tasks like darning, sewing, 
laundry, you know, some of those things, maybe laundry is not the best example, <laughs> but, you know, we're seeing women kind of freed from tasks that they used to have to do, you know, sewing their own clothes. Now you can buy clothes that have been mass produced from a factory. So women are being freed from those have to do tasks. Those tasks are changing because they're not have to do tasks anymore. And in America in particular, we're seeing expansion westward into some of the wilder places. But we also see expansion happening in other places as well. This is the time of colonialism. So, you know, those big European powers, they're moving across the globe. They're um, kind of inserting themselves into um, what what we know as the colonies. So they're, they're kind of inserting themselves into these other cultures and, and other um, systems. Um, and in doing that, they're coming into contact with new people, new ways of doing things. There's, there's new ways of being. And there's also new spaces for, um, for these Europeans. And, and that's not a judgment statement. It's, it's just a fact that, you know, they were moving into physically new spaces. Um, and that changes kind of how, as a society, we operate. You know, when you're confronted with new ideas and new ways of being, you kind of have to sort through those and, and sift through them. So overall, I think one of the things that's really important to understand about the Victorian period is the Victorian era is a time of change. And I'm looking at it specifically kind of from a British perspective. Um, but I think it's, it's really hard to talk about the Victorian era without kind of looking at Britain. Um, they were the global force really at the time. So, so we're kind of going to be looking at this episode through a little bit of a British lens in, in this regard. Um, but so the Victorian society, it was a time of change. And with that, women's roles were changing, their lives are changing, um, how they interact with society is changing. And so also their friendships are changing. And um, one noteworthy change is that friendships between women started to be encouraged during this period. So we're kind of moving away from that idea that women together is kind of untrustworthy. We're, we're out of this witch hunt phase um, that Europe went through collectively. They, they've grown out of that. And now women together isn't suspicious. Now they see women's friendships as kind of something to encourage. So society saw the closeness, the nurturing, and the loyalty that happens in women's friendships as a great way to prepare women to be better companions to their husbands. They encouraged these friendships because they saw them as a training ground for women, but they didn't see them or perceive of them as a permanent fixture in a woman's life. It was kind of the idea that you would have your friends and it would be great and you'd learn how to care for somebody else and you'd learn how to be loyal to somebody else. And then you would go and get married and your caring and your loyalty would be directed at your husband and your children. But it seems like the women of the time had slightly different ideas. Katie, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about this, how this dynamic manifested and how it played out? Certainly. I want to talk specifically about quilting circles. So I mentioned at the top of the episode how sewing isn't just for utility anymore. You're not sewing anymore because you have to. Sewing has become in this time something that women do together socially. And in particular, sitting in a quilting circle with your girlfriends has become something that women are doing together. Um, and as they're, as they're together kind of sewing, they're making a lot of times, not all the time, but they're making things like friendship quilts, which are intended to be gifts for a woman who might be getting married or who might be moving west with her family. The idea would be that your friends would come together, everyone would contribute a square, you know, that people might sew their names into the quilt somewhere. And so a woman could carry this quilt with her and carry her friends with her, even, even kind of moving to a different phase in her life. Quilting circles became a women where a, a place where women could just be themselves. And even husbands at the time were acknowledging that it's a good thing for women to have time with their friends. And I pulled that particular piece of research from the social sex. Um, but there's also a quote that I wanted to uh, to bring up, first quote of the day. And it's from an article that Julie, that you actually found, um, called Women Doing Friendship by Eileen Green. So the quote is, a number of key feminist empirical studies of women's leisure have recorded having a laugh with the girls as a jealously guarded leisure highlight. As these accounts demonstrate, women-only company affords women the chance to let their hair down and behave badly, i.e. outside the limits of normal, acceptable womanly behavior. And then another one from that same article, the quality of that talk is perceived as best within female groups in private domestic space unencumbered by male partners and other family members. This research also confirms the findings of feminist research on women's leisure that women's talk in favored places, often the kitchen or for girls' bedrooms, is a leisure highlight often accompanied by food and drink, which involves mutual self-disclosure and laughter. But what kind of talk is involved? The shared intimacy of women's talk and the sense of connection which it engenders construct a collaborative tool for exploring the world. We've talked about that before too, the idea that women bounce ideas off of other women and that helps us create our own identities. So the emphasis here upon the shared sense of belonging, which women experience and talk as friendship, is characterized as mirroring and discourse of blend and mesh is balanced by resistance discourse. In other words, those which challenge dominant, read androcentric, discourses and offer alternative ways of being a woman. And we also see this discourse in travel writing at the time. So during the Regency period, which comes um, just before the Victorian period, and then into the Victorian period, the Grand Tour, or travel of the European continent, became popular for women. Before this time, um, travel to Europe was, um, so from England, sorry, travel to Europe from England was really seen as a male activity. Um, Napoleon had been kind of, 
going about. And obviously, um, when wars are happening, it's not really safe to travel to those places. Um, Newsflash. But after Napoleon has been defeated and a little bit of time has passed and Europe is getting itself back together, literally, physically, intellectually, um, women can start to travel again. And Dr. Brian Dolan describes the status quo at the time in his book, Ladies of the Grand Tour, by saying educated women often either cultivated their talents privately and secretly or risked ridicule by priggish critics who saw women's foray into the masculine world of intellectual discourse as an affront to polite feminine etiquette. And so this kind of travel into Europe was, it was new for women. It was um, a new concept that women would, would go out of their kind of domestic sphere that they would leave the home and engage with the world at large. But as women started to travel, and often they traveled with other female companions, they began to push back against that mentality. They had other women and other cultures to compare and contrast themselves with. Um, They had other ways and other ideas to weigh, you know, their own ideas and their own ways against. And we've discussed in a few episodes now that women use friendship as a place of creating identity. We bounce ideas off of our friends to try them on for ourselves. So through this travel and then subsequently through their writing about their travel and the cultures they encountered, Victorian women had a larger group to compare themselves against. One of the cool things about the Victorian era, about this kind of 1800s time period, is how we see women, you know, we we start seeing women talking about each other and talking about being friends with each other in a public way. They often wrote about and published their travels, including about the women they traveled with. This is kind of the era of the girls' trip a little bit. Other people got to read about their friendships and their relationships for the first time. This is really the start of seeing female friendships talked about, number one, publicly, and number two, from a woman's perspective, so from a female gaze. In addition to women in literature and women as travel writers, we also see women as news writers in the Victorian era. And Julie, I know you did some research on this, so tell me about it. Yes. Um, So this section... I want to do a big shout out. Um, A lot of my information for this section is coming from the book Women Making News by Dr. Michelle Tucson. Um, The reason I want to give a super big shout out here is because Dr. Michelle Tucson was actually my graduate advisor when I was in graduate school. Um, So her book talks about women in the Victorian era kind of came together and they started writing their own newspapers. And not only did they write their own newspapers, they printed these newspapers, they distributed these newspapers. It was all done by women for women. And um, 
a quote from the book is, these newspapers thus served a dual purpose, keeping women involved with issues that affected their own lives, while at the same time encouraging the support of women's causes within the larger context of Britain, the empire, and the world. They were publicizing such issues or publicizing such issues provides readers with a female-centered perspective on social reform unavailable to them in any other medium. And so what she's saying here is that this is really the first time women are moving out of what historians call the domestic sphere. So they're moving kind of out of the home and they're, they're carving out a space. They weren't taking existing newspaper jobs that happened to be out there. They were creating their own. They created their own newspaper. They created their own articles for that newspaper. They created their own system of distribution. They weren't moving into the male-dominated world in terms of news and newspapers. They were making their own space. And that's a pretty big deal. And it kind of got started, you know, we talked about these women travel writers who were growing abroad. They were having these experiences and they were coming home and they were writing about them. And then they continued to write and they continued to share these issues that they came up against um, that they saw as particularly relevant to their lives, these women's issues. Um, and they got some pushback. Uh, they got a, quite a bit of pushback, actually. But it was through these newspapers and it was through these kind of women's groups where women were coming together to talk about issues um, and talk about the society around them that really started the push for suffrage. So these were not inconsequential little newspapers. These were a really big deal. And the newspapers were paid for. They were creating jobs for women. They were moving women out of the domestic sphere into the public sphere and creating professional space for women. It's a pretty big change. Um, you hit on suffrage, which I think is so, like, this is... This is the time period when we see the suffragettes really start ramping up and becoming part of the conversation. We see women in general speaking up and becoming forces for change during this time period. We see women rallying around suffrage. We see women running charities. We also see women pushing for temperance, which you and I talked about this a little bit before. Um, and you kind of changed my perspective on it, honestly. You know, when, when we think about temperance today, we think about prohibition and how silly and backward it was to, to push for a society without alcohol. But to some of these women, this was the only way that they felt they could be safe in their, in their lives. And so I think that's important. And I think it's important that we that we, yeah, that we talk about these women who are sort of carving out this very public space for themselves and doing it unashamedly and doing it knowing that they're going to get pushback. 
how brave, how brave they were. Um, and I know that you wanted to talk about Florence Nightingale too, so I won't talk too much about professional friendships, but tell me about professional friendships and Florence Nightingale. Sure. Um, before I do that, I just want to touch on um, our temperance conversation that, that you and I have had um, and just kind of share it with anyone that's that's listening because it's it's generally not a part of the conversation about temperance and and prohibition in America. But a lot of the temperance movement, so the push to ban alcohol and make alcohol illegal, a lot of that was not necessarily coming from kind of a religious perspective and alcohol is bad and you're evil if you drink it, although that was certainly um, a part of the discourse. But a large part of the pushback from temperance is that before women were part of the workforce, they relied solely on their husbands for income. And you were at their complete mercy and discretion in terms of their spending habits. Um, And this was also a time when domestic violence wasn't really acknowledged. It certainly existed. Um, I would even argue to a greater degree than it exists now. Um, but it wasn't talked about. And a big part of the push for temperance was that men were often getting very drunk. Um, Frequently, that also meant spending a lot of their money, obviously, to go get drunk. And they were coming home and they were abusing their wives. And women got to the point where they were, they were done. And, And that was a huge part of the push behind temperance and so anytime you hear people kind of talking about prohibition and they're like oh that's what happens when we give women the right to vote which is a quote that I have literally heard people say yeah it is when you give women the right to vote they're gonna vote for you to stop fucking beating them and we should stop shaming women for that because it's kind of fucking disgusting sorry now I'm upset I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I just, I hadn't thought about prohibition that way before. And so I really appreciate the conversation we had about it. And I'm glad that now we've shared it here because I think it's a, it's a nuance that gets lost in these conversations. And I think that's, that's so, that's something that happens frequently when we talk about the history of women and the history of female friendships is that women's stories and motives, the details of their lives, those get lost in these sort of larger cultural stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Anybody can get caught up in that. Anybody can get caught up in that loss and, and have a perspective that, that doesn't include how women actually felt and why they were pushing for what they were pushing for. And now I'm on a soapbox, so I'll get off and let you continue. <laughs> no, I, you know, I think this is, this was not, you know, really part of the the conversation we had planned to have today, but I think it's still so relevant. You know, we're, we're in this me too era, or I think we're kind of in the post me too at this point, but it's funny to me that these situations kind of mirror themselves um in in some ways some very significant ways um 
a lot of the criticism that I have heard about the Me Too movement is from guys saying like, well, now I don't know how to, you know, I'm just, so I'm just not supposed to hit on a woman. I'm just, I can't walk up to anybody at the bar. No, nobody said that. But it's not like all of a sudden women have decided we don't like the way you're hitting on us. We have felt this way. We have felt this way for years and years and years. But now we're saying it. And, and it's being met with this idea that it's this flippant change of mind by women. And that's not the case at all. And I, I really think, you know, Me Too is often kind of shamed and dismissed in the same way that temperance and prohibition have been historically shamed and dismissed. And that kind of part of the conversation where women are standing up for themselves and are saying, the way you're treating us is not okay and it needs to stop, that part is getting kind of removed from the conversation when that's the whole part of the conversation that women are trying to freaking have in the first place. And instead of kind of coming and meeting that conversation head on and saying, okay, this thing is happening and, and people don't like it, so we should address it and, and figure out a solution. It's becoming a criticism of how women do that. That we're not speaking up in the right ways. And, and you know what? I'm going to go on and I'm going to make this, I'm just going to dig myself into this hole. That's what's going on with Black Lives Matter. That's what's going on with Stop Asian Hate. People are coming out and they're saying the way we've been treated is not okay with us. And instead of listening and saying, oh, how can we treat you in a way that will make you feel included, that will make you feel whole, that will make you feel safe? I'm going to criticize the way that you've said it. And I'm going to criticize the moves that you've made to make yourself feel safe instead of changing my own behavior. Now I'm going to get off my soapbox and I'm going to talk about women's professional friendships in the Victorian <laughs> era. And I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. And this is who I am. And if you don't like it, don't listen to my fucking podcast. <laughs> Amen. All right. I'm off my soapbox now. That was me climbing down. Professional friendships in the Victorian era. This is the first time women have professional friendships for the most part. Um, and that's really cool because women in this time period are really, like I said, they're carving out new spaces for themselves. And I think kind of the icon of this is Florence Nightingale. So, for anybody who doesn't know, Florence Nightingale is kind of seen as the, the mother of modern nursing. Before Florence, nursing was kind of considered um, a lower class job if women did it at all, if anybody did it at all, quite frankly. Um, and a lot of the, the role was kind of cleaning up. Victorian hospitals are notoriously disgusting places. They're really sanitation departments do come out of the Victorian period. And there is a reason, y'all. It was a gross place. So 
respectable women didn't really participate in nursing. Um, And Florence Nightingale was from a very wealthy family. And Florence knew she wanted to be a nurse and her family was like, that's absolutely not going to happen. So they sent Florence to Egypt with one of her girlfriends, hoping that kind of this, this, you know, travel thing that was new for women would get this idea, these crazy thoughts that she was having out of her system. Instead, she went to Egypt, which had a lot of poverty. Um, Again, this was a place that Napoleon had been messing around in. So, um, you know, the colonial powers kind of came through and they screwed up the system that was there. And then they were like, oh, wow, this place is so screwed up. We need to stay and take care of it, as they did. And so Florence sees this. She sees the poverty. She sees all that's going on in Egypt. And it just kind of doubles down her, her belief that she is meant to be a nurse. And eventually this belief of hers becomes kind of, she describes as a calling from God to become a nurse. And she goes on to um, become a nurse in the Crimean War, kind of single-handedly. She just kind of goes with like a group of other women, like a very small group who she kind of recruits and trains and she's like, we're going to go into this situation that we've never been in before. And we're just going to revolutionize, revolutionize nursing, not an exact quote, but they do. Um, And she's a huge force of change um, that the British military did not always welcome because she called them out on some stuff. Um, The same thing with the American civil war disease and um, infection were actually more deadly than the battle itself was. And Florence was like, you know, maybe we should clean this up. It's a weird thought, but maybe we can do it. So she becomes kind of this cult hero for what she did. And she goes on to create a nursing school. And Florence Nightingale says to a group of women graduating from her nursing school, and this this is a quote, the friendships which have begun at this school may last through life and be a help and strength to us. For may we not regard the opportunity given for acquiring friends as one of the uses of this place. So what she's kind of saying here is she's encouraging them to find friendship in the workplace. She's saying, you know, a lot of people don't think that coming to work here and and just coming to work in general is a place for friends, but you have these other like-minded women with you. And so you should use them as, as strength and as comfort, both in your career and your personal life. And that's a pretty big deal. And as great as that sounds, Florence Nightingale was not always a friend to other women. And while we do see her there encouraging friendship um, and friendship in the workplace, she really saw herself as something different from women at the time. She She didn't think she was like them. She didn't think she could relate to them. In fact, Florence Nightingale's most famous friendship is with a man, Sidney Herbert, who helped her get to the Crimea. And I have another quote from you, um, for you. 
And this is from an article called The Inherent Influence of Travel on an Emerging Feminist Icon, Florence Nightingale Abroad. And the author of this says, Nightingale believed they were incapable of perseverance and convinced that they only pursued personal ends and were unable to understand public responsibilities. She, have, she appears to have looked to men for her intellectual challenges and thought herself a woman born with a male intellect. So that's how she saw other women. Edith Wharton, the writer, I think she felt kind of similarly that she was different from other women, that she was more intellectual and more capable um, than other women. And her books are full. And again, we'll do a literature episode where we may or may not dig into Edith Wharton a little more. We'll see. <laughs> but for now, you know, her books are full of female characters who represent what I think is really a dichotomous look at society. One that perhaps we still see a little bit of today, where there was a right way to be a woman, basically to sit still and look pretty. And there were women who didn't want to do that. I wanted to mention this now instead of kind of holding off on it for our literature episode for a couple of reasons. The first is that with both Edith Wharton and Florence Nightingale, as I said, we see the roots of something we still talk about today, women who are different. I've heard lots of women say things like, I'm not like other women. I only have guys, guy friends. I'm a tomboy. I'm a guy's girl. I'm not a girly girl. And I've also seen it referenced and reinforced in movies and books and TV shows that there is usually a, like sometimes there's a female character who's not like other women. And I think that when we say that, we're playing into this old narrative that there's a right way to be a woman. And we don't just, we don't realize how far back that particular perspective goes. I mean, we talked about it with the witch trials. This idea that like, I'm cool, but other women aren't. We don't realize, I think, when we talk about it today, how far back that idea actually goes. So a book that I've referenced in a few other episodes is Witches by Sam George Allen. And she has a quote that kind of goes along with this and she says to be taken seriously one must be alone among men and I think that's certainly um Florence Nightingale's kind of perspective on this and I think we also saw that with Edith Wharton as well um and what um Sam George Allen goes on to suggest is that our culture sees girl stuff and that's in quotes as silly and frivolous boy stuff also in quotes as serious and cool and I do think that that this is something that's changing for sure but it still clings to us and our ways of being you know Katie mentioned we see this in movies we see it in books that being one of the guys is the ideal the girl that's one of the guys is always sexy and fun and flirty. And she's always with only other guys, only males. And that's supposed to be kind of a sign that she's made it, that she's cool. And the other girls 
are often depicted as needy or bossy or overly emotional or they're manipulative or they're ridiculous and over the top in some other fashion. Um, One movie that's coming to mind, you know, immediately for me is the movie Easy A with um, Emma Stone. Really funny movie. But the Emma Stone character is definitely the not like other girls girl. She's different. She We don't really see her with a lot of girlfriends. We see her interacting largely with guys. And we do see the, you know, the, the villain, so to speak, is another girl that's too much. And that tends to be kind of the narrative of this. Um, we see this not like other girls idea blossoming here in the Victorian era. That they, you know, the, the Edith Whartons and the uh, Florence Nightingales, they're acknowledging that they have different feelings than what society has prescribed to them, but they're not allowing that maybe there are other women who also feel that same way. So on the one hand, we do see women breaking into more public domains and they're changing and challenging the narrative on what women can do. And we see women creating new spaces for themselves. Um, We also see women slamming the door to those spaces behind them. Um, And really that's, um, you know, that's something that we're going to explore in further episodes. And I think it's something that has been a consistent criticism of the various waves of feminism. So I I think both of those things are happening. We're kind of seeing the the beginning of this. I'm not like other women. We're seeing women moving into new spaces and creating new spaces. But we're also seeing women being gatekeepers to those spaces. Um, And I think there are positive aspects of that and I think there are also very detrimental aspects of that yeah I think so um you made me think of a quote from an article again an article that you found Julie's like a research genius yeah. <laughs> I don't know where she finds everything um but this article is called female friendships in mid-Victorian England and this quote I think sums up some of the significance of the changes to women's friendships during the Victorian period friendships with all the features of common purpose encouragement challenge and mentorships, which we might readily recognize today, but which were quite new in the early Victorian lexicon of female friendships. So this is an era of change. It's an era of change in society and it's an era of change in female friendships. And I think that we will see that sort of criticism and pushback that you mentioned in future episodes and we'll see women's roles and relationships continue to develop and change along with larger changes in society. In fact, I think we'll see it in our very next episode, which will cover, we think, we haven't written it yet, but we think it will cover the beginning of the 20th century and sort of up through the two world wars. As we have with kind of looking at the Industrial Revolution, with women traveling and with women creating new spaces in the Victorian era, in our next episode, we'll see women continue to carve out new places and to join in the larger world that they weren't always welcome in. 
but there's pushback to that. And we'll look at the push and pull between women's traditional roles and the new world that they're starting to build and create for themselves. But for now, <laughs> that's a lot. So for now, let's wrap things up and share some of our research. So we will get our articles posted on the website. Um, I didn't really talk about it a lot, but I sort of went down a YouTube rabbit hole with a channel called Absolute History about um, Victorian culture. And then I referenced The Social Sex, which is a book I've referenced before that is by, oh goodness, I think it's by Marilyn Yalom and Teresa Donovan Brown. You'd think that for as many yes. times i mentioned it, I would know. <laughs> but it's called The Social Sex. Hang on, I'll make sure I get the names right while you share your research. All right, sure. Um, so... I'm literally surrounded by my research right now, so I'm, it's a little bit disjointed. But I have Women Making News by Dr. Michelle Tucson. Read it. I encourage you. Um, Ladies of the Grand Tour by Dr. Brian Dolan. Witches by Sam George Allen, um, which I've referenced before. Another book I've referenced before is Soulmates from the Pages of History, from Mythical to Contemporary, 75 Examples of the Power of Friendship. Um, and then I had a couple of articles that I referenced that I will put up on the website. So we're not here for another 20 minutes reading academic article titles. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. <laughs> um, and the social sex was in fact written by Marilyn Yalom and Teresa Donovan Brown. Yeah. I double checked. <laughs> Lovely. All right, Katie. Well Am I closing us with our toast today? That's so exciting. Yes, please. All right, y'all. There are tall ships and small ships. There are ships that sail the sea, but the best ships are friendships, and may they always be.